Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. This is the word of God. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance with the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Remain standing as we pray together. Our Father, I think of the words of the Apostle Paul, and he wrote in another place that he desired his words to be a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And for that to be the case, we know that the words of a preacher need to be absolutely in line with the Scriptures. We pray for that this morning. We pray that ears would be receptive to the Spirit's work, not the words of a person. And Father, that the preacher himself would, would be able to, to sense your spirit alive and well and not just preparation, but in the delivery. And we pray for all these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It was about 100 years after the Apostle Paul lived that a man named Clement of Alexandria lived. Clement was a well-known church father, one of the people that, that uh, you can read about in those centuries following the times of the apostles, the times after Jesus. And he said something that I found rather startling. Clearly, he had been thinking about a passage, either this exact one or, or one similar to it, when he said, the true Christian practices being God. The true Christian practices being God. A couple of you offered the, mm hmm, hmm. I don't know about that, is what you're thinking. I found myself wrestling, well, would it be a little more comfortable? The true Christian practices being like God, God like. They all left me a little bit ill at ease. And yet, the thrust of this passage is to imitate God. I don't know if Clement got it right. There's ways in which the wording of that leaves me at least uncomfortable. But I hope the wording of the Holy Spirit in Scripture may leave you uncomfortable, but I hope it doesn't leave you unwilling. Unwilling to wrestle with what does it mean to be imitators 
of God. That is something that is only explicitly stated right here in Scriptures in this way. But it's right there. We might say it's to mimic God. Mimic in our, our definition means to, to, to imitate closely someone. It's actually the word that, that comes from, from uh, this idea of imitation. The word mimic flows out of that and just the derivation of words. So I want us to ask the question, what are you going to do with this command to imitate God? Let's begin by just asking the question, well, what would that mean? What would it mean to imitate God? And I hope that by the time we're ending and we have walked through this passage, we've made some progress. Mimicking God, I put in your outline, is living a godly love and forgiveness. So I want to ask the question, what, what is it about God that is off limits, that, that to practice being God in certain ways is just foolish, it's unreasonable, it can't be done? Well, those omni kind of words come to mind, the, the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the all-present. Those are off limits, and theologically a nice big term is used, the non-communicable traits or attributes of God. We're not talking about trying to be all-present, all-knowing, all-omnipresent, these kinds of things. But we are talking about God's communicable attributes. If I had a dollar for every time I've been asked in my medical career, Doc, is this contagious? I wouldn't be here. I'd be on, I'd have bought Putin's yacht in the last two weeks, and I'd be relaxing on that probably. Because people are always asking the question, is it contagious? And I remember probably almost back about the time I was in medical school, coming across a cartoon. You'll see it maybe above me, where, where the doctor looks at the man with the clearly contagious spots on his body, who knows what's under the clothes, and he holds out the stick of medicine, and on the end of it, he said, at the end of it, he says, don't touch the stick. That's contagious. And we want to ask ourselves, what are the attributes, the qualities of our God that are contagious, that can be passed on in a communicable kind of way to us? Things that we can catch. Those things, just the short list would be love and goodness and justice and kindness and wisdom. So to imitate God begins with just identifying what are the things that we truly can imitate so with the Spirit's help, we can make progress on making ourselves look more like that. It's going to take some careful study as well. People in every year of time, I'm sure, have been, certain people have been good mimickers. Back in Paul's day, he was familiar with public speakers, Greek orators. Key part of their training was to not just study the theory of being an orator, a public speaker. A key part of their training was to observe closely other orators and, and do it for some time and to seek to mimic, to seek to copy their very patterns. Kind of different than today where it's just kind of a free-for-all, do whatever you want as a public speaker and be authentic. But back then, it was really a mimicking of the great public speakers. Who mimics people today? Comedians. 
Never thought you'd have comedians held up as an example at a church service, but to the degree that comedians study the person they're trying to mimic, identifying their characteristics, how they hold their head, how they shift in their seat, how they have a lisp or don't, the common phrases they use, and perhaps above all, they identify those defining characteristics in that famous person, in that sports hero, in that movie star when they're seeking to mimic them. What would be the defining characteristics of God? What would rise to the top where if you did not in your life seek to mimic, seek to imitate that behavior in God, you'd miss the mark. I would say it's right here. It's the end of chapter 4. It's chapter 5, verse 2. Two things that, that rise. I don't know if they're for sure 1 and 2. They might be 1 and 3, but they're at the top of those defining characteristics. The one that might be number 2 or number 3 is found at the end of chapter 4. After we're told to be kind to one another and tender-hearted, we're told, forgive one another as Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. And then we see in chapter 5, verse 2, after we're told to be imitators as beloved children, we're told to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Forgiving and love. To walk a life of forgiveness and to walk a life of love may well be the most defining characteristics of God that he desires to pass on to us. You know, love is, is present throughout the scriptures. We'll continue to unpack that as, as Ephesians goes on. But I, I couldn't help but think about forgiveness and a life of forgiveness. I have not, to the best of my knowledge in my lifetime, been challenged to make a big, big forgiveness of another, as I know perhaps some right here have. And I appreciate your example. But I have been challenged in the day-to-day to be someone who is forgiving. I... I I share a small triumph because it's so small, I don't think it's at all arrogant to share it. It was a time I was, of all things, leading a men's Bible study a few years ago. Wasn't with any of you, don't worry. And, and one of the guys in the study was answering a question or making a comment, and for whatever reason, there was a little verbal jab at me. After the study, one of the guys came up to me, he almost came up and it was like insisting on talking. And he said, why would you handle that that way? Did that bother you? I could tell it bothered him. I, I, I said, what are, you, what are you talking about? And he brought the exact words to mine. And I told my friend, you know what? I don't even remember him saying that. It was perhaps, no, it was God's grace. It was a small triumph in my life of the work of a great Holy Spirit that it didn't, in that case, even register enough that I remembered it 45 minutes later. 
I only share it because to me, it's small. But a walk in forgiveness in this life is, is filled with what we do with rude drivers. It's filled with what we do with the comments of immature children. It's filled with what we do with a caustic co-worker. It's filled with what we do with opinionated brothers and sisters in God's church. I know, according to the elders, that variance has never shown up in this church, but if it ever does, you'll be prepared. Handling an opinionated brother or sister in a pew a couple rows back or ahead of you. There is a lot of opportunity to walk in forgiveness, a defining characteristic of what it means, along with love, to be able to imitate our God. So I, I want to offer a little application before we move on. It seems like, you know, hey, brother, you've been camping out on, on this first verse. Well, this first verse is so very key. I honestly think it is the key verse of this passage, that what follows is this, it follows on the heels of this instruction to be imitators of God. I think everything follows in line with that. Paul states it, and then he follows up with that. But here's the two things. One is that the core of imitating God is this forgiveness and, and this loving of others. But the other, I would say, is that I think the imitating of God of putting on his character, putting on who he is, has a lot more, if not a lot, lot more, of our being rather than our doing. You know, in our culture, so much of what we seek to imitate in another is their accomplishments, is, is the position that they've risen to, is the accolades they've gotten. As we look at Ephesians 4, we've said it already. The first chapters, 1, 2, and 3, are a lot more of the why of the Christian life. The why you do these things. It's the theological foundation. And chapters 4, 5, and 6, we're right in the middle of them, is the how. What you do with the why. How you live out, according to God, according to His Holy Spirit, how you live this life. And I would just offer you a few of the verses we've been studying already and ask you the question, is the focus more on the being, the changing of your character, or is it more on the outward accomplishments and the things you do in this life? When we looked at chapter 4, we read, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How about verses 22 and 24 of chapter 4? Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. It's corrupt through deceitful desires. And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then, of course, these verses we've already begun to look at. Forgiving one another as Christ in God and Christ forgave you. Be imitators of God and walk in love. But what about all the things you and I have done? That GPA we worked so hard to get up. The sports trophies, the promotions, the college we got into, the money we're making, the money we've given away. 
Sunday school lessons we've taught, the missions trips we've signed up for, the days we've volunteered at Camp Elam. What about all those things? Maybe we should remind ourselves when God called attention to someone of whom he was deeply proud to call his child, would he note it? Have you considered, Satan, my servant Job? Did God launch into the work that Job was doing? Did he launch into the, the, the charitable giving? When he talked about Job, he said, There's none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. We're created in Christ Jesus, we know from Ephesians 2, to do good works. But when it comes to imitating God, it is a clear reminder that our spiritual qualities, not spiritual trophies and accomplishments, are at the heart of what it means to imitate our God. Number two in your outline, mimicking or imitating God puts away the now dead giveaways of the old self. Now I know if we found a Bible-rejecting history buff, and I know there's more than a few out there in our culture today, that, that we could look over this next list, read it to him or her, and they'd say, ha-ha, proved it. You people and the history of Christianity is just anti-sex, anti-fun, anti-a-good-joke. Nailed you. You know, I think of just the time my father-in-law said he was sitting with a few guys after playing a round of golf years ago. And one of them began to brag about just all the things in his diet that he had given up. No more fried food. No more sweets. Definitely no alcohol. That guy got up from the table to answer a call or use the restroom, and the older of the men, men sitting at the table just looked at the other and said, that guy's dead and don't know it. <laughs> you know, Christianity is not about just all the things we give up. In fact, if there is a guy that's dead and don't know it, it is the Christian that says, by God's grace, I am no longer that man who's dead and don't know it. And I see around me Across the street in my neighborhood, I see around me a few cubicles down. I see around me a student just ahead of me with her at his desk sits that is dead, spiritually dead, and doesn't know it. And I'm burdened by that. Now, the Christian life is not about trying to do the whole 30 at a Ben and Jerry's ice cream convention. But it is one that recognizes there's a difference between the darkness we were once in and the light we are now in. And how that makes a difference in how we navigate through this life. We are different. We'll see in verse 8 that it says we're not just transitioning from being around darkness as if we were in the wrong crowd. And now we've migrated to just kind of a crowd that's a little bit more cleaned up, a little more light in the mix. We'll see when we get to verse 8 that it says we were darkness and we are now light. It's a powerful difference. So as we look at this list together... 
I, I want to point out just one word that we'll find in, in verse 3 that says saints. When you think of the word saints, what word, what adjective comes to mind, first of all? I don't know, for me, it's holy. I bet you one of your words might be close to that. For my wife, it's my name. No, I'm just <laughs> But you know what? The root of the word actually is not as much holy as different. And navigating through this life is a recognition is that we are different. By God's grace, we are markedly different in who we are from the inside out, our outlook on life, our future hope. And so let's look at these words and say, I need to remind myself how different I am, even as I navigate through this life among people that I want to see come to know Jesus. Let's look at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. If there was a word that I might use to describe the attitude of our culture as it relates to the breadth of sexual issues, a message that they have for me and the message they have for you, I think it would be summed up in the word acceptance. As in, you better accept, and maybe the word approval would be a close second. Paul's just reminding us, that's nothing new. Things might change in terms of what are the exact issues and what rises to the surface as cultural issues. But Paul purposely chooses words here that are very broad. Not because he doesn't feel like sexual issues get very specific with any one of us, but because the breadth of what is outside of God's commands as it relates to sex is very broad. The Greek word porneia is is a broad word. Basically, as according to the Scripture's teaching, anything outside of sexual intercourse within the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. And there's a lot of things our culture wants us to accept as it relates to sexual issues that there's no foundation in our scriptures to support. In fact, Paul would say these things are clear indication of the darkness that is in our culture and in any life that is apart from Jesus Christ. It goes on to talk about in verse 4, filthiness and how we talk. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. John Stott has did a great commentary on this, and I just quote him briefly here. It's as if there are dirty minds expressing themselves in dirty talk. What's in the mind, the filthiness that is within us apart from Christ's saving work and changing work manifests itself in dirty talk. But he puts on the end of this verse, instead, let there be thanksgiving. In a sense, it seems so out of place to say, stop telling dirty jokes and be thankful. Does it seem like a disconnect to you as it did to me and most Bible scholars that have studied it? And yet, to give it some more thought, it may well be that Paul is saying, you see, what's going on with with dirty talk, 
with, with just coarse joking much of the time is, is making fun of things that God intended for good. I would hope that, that the church would be the ones that could actually say with a straight face and with a, a true heart, thank God for sex. My father created it. And he created bounds for our protection so it meets up with all the goodness he intended. And as believers, as ones wanting to protect the plans of a heavenly father, we can find thanksgiving as the appropriate thoughts as it relates to sex, as opposed to coarse and callous joking. We go on to look, if I could look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Empty words. You ever heard those in your week? You ever turned on the TV in the last week? Ever watched the messages in a movie in the last week? Ever someone just spouting out stuff of what they think's true in our culture where I'm my own authority on all that's right? The word here is empty. It was used when, when Jesus told a parable way back in Mark 12 when he just referred to, to men, a worker, leaving empty-handed. So what does that mean? What was in his hands as he left? Nothing. That's right. Nothing was in his hands. And when someone speaks empty words to you, what have they given to you? What of substance have they given to you? The answer is nothing. There's nothing that they have given to you that carries weight. There's nothing that they have given to you that carries actual truth. There's certainly nothing that they've given to you that carries wisdom, much less God's specific blessed wisdom. Often what they've given to you through false hope, through false assurance, is something that's quite dangerous. And our culture is so good at that. Think of a mom or dad who come this next August is seeing, seeing off a son or daughter heading off to college and says something like this to his or her co-workers a couple of days after dropping the kid off at college. I told my boy, I told my girl, whatever it is, you got to sow your oats, just do it carefully. Don't get any disease. If you don't think that won't be said thousands and thousands of times this August, you've lost touch with the world. What about someone that says, we're getting married, but life's complicated enough already. We, well, we were going to get married, but now he's just moving in with me. And you know what's interesting to me in our culture today? Is I used to think that would just be somebody in their 20s. Now it could be somebody in their 70s in Phoenix. Sun City. You know, 90%, I think, of what comes out of Washington, D.C. is probably aptly put as empty words. 95% if you're talking in an interview with a sports hero. And 99.9% if you're listening to Hollywood. 
We are surrounded, my friends, with empty words. And Paul doesn't as much say that we need to just close our ears, but he says that we just look a little bit further down in verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We need to be ones who know truth, who are attracted to truth, who identify it instinctively because of our familiarity with God's Word. We are to no longer, it says in verse 8, Partner with those in darkness. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. We are to be ones. And then verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. We need to figure out how do we navigate through this life? How do we discern the, the interaction that we have with darkness. You know, Jesus was around some people that were in darkness. He approached Legion. He approached Mary Magdalene. He approached and did not run from, from a woman called an adultery. But how Jesus was so wise in those interactions. I recall a time that I was truthfully seeking to navigate this when I was just on a medical uh, leadership meeting in Nashville a few years ago. And in and, and the course of that, was trying to just get to know some of these people I'd been on conference calls with. And, and I can honestly say, genuinely prayed to, to seek to be a light. And some of them were going to go out in the evening. It wasn't late at night. Honestly, I think it was about 7 o'clock in the evening. We're all getting old, so it was like being in bed by 9.30. got to go out early. We went down to the Broadway of Nashville with the honky-tonks, which are just where country music's played. I tell you, about an hour into that, two and a half hours, the music blaring where I couldn't even have conversation. I watched people that were very much professionals in the day in and day out on their third, fourth beer after about 50 minutes. I said to myself, wrong setting for this. I don't think it was sin for me to be there. I honestly can look back and say, I think I had the right motivations and even been prayerful about it, but wrong setting. I won't do this again. Part of my journey in living out verse 10 of discerning my interaction of light and darkness, of wanting to be in the world but not of it, is, was evaluating how that went. Say, so next time I'll stay back and see if a couple of the guys are just hanging out in the lobby, just enter into some conversation there. We see in verse 9 that we are to look at what's good and right and true. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. We're to mimic God by putting aside these other things we've read and, and begin to see ourselves as embracing what is good and right and true. And that leads us to our last uh, in our outline. Mimicking God, imitating Him is a godly life that is casting divine light. We were darkness, verse 8. You at one time were darkness, but now you are light. Light embraces all that is good and right and true. And the Christian life, in large part, is discerning in his or her own life what that means for them and the journey they've been given. 
So where am I going to find what is good and right and true? G- give me the coordinates. Let me enter it into my phone so I know, I know where that place is that's good and right and true is. Uh, the Holy Spirit said, no, no, it's, it's not a location. It's, it's a person changed by God's Holy Spirit. In the novel Les Mis, it was for Jean Valjean, a priest. Having spent the night with the priest, being welcomed into his home, Jean Valjean, then a thief, left with some of the priest's items, only to be brought back by the police later that morning. And the priest, knowing who was outside the door, grabbed the silver candlesticks. And when the door opened, said to his friend Jean Valjean, you forgot the candlesticks. And in that moment, though it is even just a novel, we see such a beautiful example of the good and right and true as Jean Valjean could look, no doubt, in that precise and see that in him, even as the words could be unspoken, go and sin no more. For Corrie Ten Boom, she had lived through the Holocaust. Tremendous lady. But she began to learn what was good and true right in a watchmaker shop as a young lady. She saw in that watchmaker shop one day when she was there, she saw the watchmaker owner welcome in a man, a man of means, who wanted, clearly, an expensive watch. The watchmaker, as she observed him, sold this wealthy man an expensive watch, accepted the cash, had tucked it away in the money purse underneath the counter. And then the watchmaker happened to say to the wealthy man, why today for buying and shopping for a new watch? And the man pulled out of his pocket a watch that was just as nice, just just as valuable, and said, I love this watch, but it doesn't work. And and the watchmakers in town haven't been able to get it to, to work. And with that, the man who had sold him the watch, who was quite knowledgeable himself about watches, took it out of his hand and said, may I look at it for a moment? And within a very short time, had fixed the watch and handed it back to him with no charge. And with that, he reached underneath the counter and pulled out the cash and said, I believe this is yours, and pointing to the new watch, and I believe that's mine. After he walked out, Corey said to this watchmaking owner of the shop, Dad, you know we need the money. That's when he said to Corey, Corey, God will take care of us. And in that moment, she not only saw what was good and right and true in a person, but she began to believe something that a few years later would see her through a concentration camp for Jesus because her family would be hiding Jews and be caught and she'd spend time in Ravensburg. We are to be ones who, who seek out the good and the true and the beautiful in this life in others. Who comes to my mind? I'm going to be a politician and not answer the question. I'm going to answer a different question. Who do I want to come to mind? I'd love that each one of you would be who would come to mind. 
as ones who are discerning and growing by God's grace into embodying the good and the true and all that is right. We are to mimic God to circle back to where we began. How's that even possible? That's where I kind of began myself. We, it's possible to mimic God because he has made it possible. It begins with the fact that he has given each one of us the incredible opportunity to become one of his children. We saw that as our motivation in verse 1. Be imitators of God as beloved children. He's given us an opportunity by the gospel to become a beloved child. You want to imitate God, the first step, if you've not taken it, is to see the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is when your sins that separate you from this great and marvelous God, your sins were paid for. And he awaits that time, and I hope it's so very soon, that you would place your faith and trust in that God. But when you become a child of the king, you realize he's now shown you what he's like. So much in religion over the history of mankind is is human beings making up what they think God's like. Christianity isn't that way. We're obedient to the description God himself has, has painted for us. It's not guesswork. Whether we're seeing the forgiving God as we work our way through the Old Testament, like Nate mentioned this morning that he and Sarah are doing and others of us are doing and in Bible reading, whether it's studying the life of our Lord Jesus Christ and seeing his interactions, his interactions of forgiveness and of love every moment of his life, whether it's studying the New Testament letters and seeing like we see here in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, the pattern that is laid out for us for how we are to imitate God. He has given us this command to move through our weak Mimicking his forgiveness. To, to walk through this, this week ahead, walking in the love that he models for us. So there you have it. How it's possible to mimic God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these scriptures. Our prayer would be that we would be imitators of a gracious and forgiving and loving and wonderful God who has called us into relationship with him as his beloved children. Give us grace to do it this week. We pray this in his name. Amen. You're dismissed.